0: Hello and welcome to the ADHD Mums podcast. Welcome to Chantelle, who is back again. Chantel is a nurse from North Brisbane. She is neurodiverse with two neurodiverse children and she's back today to discuss relationships and how your upbringing and your diagnosis impacts your relationships today. So welcome Chantelle. Thanks so much Jane, it's so great to be back again. So Chantelle started to wanted to tell me a ADHD kind of fail that she had, and I said, No, 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 stop! We've got to hit record because these are so good.
1: So feel free to keep going, Chantelle. I really want to know. It is so timely, you know, as we we had previously discussed, like the the self. Hatred and and it's so wonderful to know that I can actually laugh about these things now. And and there is the value in in medication and therapy, I guess. So I had decided to go to this particular supermarket today because I had to pick up ADHD medication. So I thought I'll go to a supermarket that I don't usually go to. And I had gone to the supermarket, nailed it, got home. I was like, yep, good job. And I had spent so much energy concentrating on going to that supermarket and making sure that I got everything done and could find everything in that supermarket and felt like I was winning and came home. And that was at 10 o'clock this morning. It's now 1.30 and I realized I've actually forgot to pick up the medication, which was the whole reason why I was going to that supermarket (laughs) because the just next door. And it's taken me, you know, a good four hours to realize that. But I can laugh about it, which is wow. Great. But yeah. Well
0: So that's to a, that's another job that you and. need to do before your weekend away. Great.
1: Yeah. So add that in and Yeah, but that's that's okay. But I just thought, oh, how funny that it happened today <laughs> while we're
0: recording this. I'm just so glad you remembered now before you were away.
1: Right. Same. Um,
0: <laughs> yes. Okay, well, that was a cracker. I like that one. Thank you. That's like something everybody identifies. That's a daily kind of fail for me. So back to relationships, we have had so many people write in about relationships. And I've met a lot of women who have said to me things like, I think my misdiagnosis has really impacted my ability to have children, for example, being on bipolar medication or, you know, not being in the right relationship at the right time, not being in the right headspace, you know, in that critical 25 to 40 year gap where most people, you know, have a child and there's so much grief with that. The impact on relationships socially as kids and also as adults with friendships and romantic relationships has a huge play. So I wanted to bring that up today because I think it's so timely that we really get into this one with the amount of people that are asking, and for a lot of people, they can mask the inattention, they can mask the impulsivity, they can deal with it, you know, some silly decisions. But when it impacts, you know, maybe the best friend you've you've had for ten years that you have an argument with, and you you can't figure out how to to get that conflict back, or you don't know how to ask your husband or your wife for what you need. It's those things that, in my opinion, hit the hardest for a lot of people. A lot of people, not everyone, but it can hit hard. And I was wondering, you know, kind of what was your perspective on, on some of those topics?
1: Yeah, I really believe that our understanding of relationships for neurotypicals as well is hugely impacted by our immediate family and our upbringing. And for neurodivergence, I think it is really has a profound effect on how we interact with people. I quite often get asked, you know, what, what was the value in a diagnosis at 39 or what is the value if you know that your kids are like this and you can still support them and provide what they need and give them the adjustment, medication aside, what is, why do you need a diagnosis? And I think this is so interlinked with understanding what those relationships look like with our immediate family. When we're young and we have a diagnosis, if our family is more accommodating and understanding of what is going on for us, and then they have knowledge around that, you know, knowledge is power, right? We can best support people when we understand what is happening to them and in your immediate family, if you're a child and you don't know what's happening to you and your parents don't know why you're behaving like that and you are believing it's just because you're useless and you're forgetful and why can't you just clean your room? You don't know. They're the adult. You know, why can't Ooh, you wow. just be organised? Why are you so forgetful? Sorry, Chantelle, or you get classed as naughty
0: because you're disruptive. Now you're the naughty you're boy. The- and, and then you're labelled with this disruptive label because you can't sit on the mat. Sorry to interrupt. I
1: just, that's a real bugbear for me. No, you are absolutely right. Or they talk too much. Oh, yeah. Like I got that my whole way through school. No, they talk too much. Well, if you, if our teachers know, and I know this with my daughter and I give all of her teachers this information, she would like to clarify the task she will need to break it down. She will need, so yeah, she might use 500 more words than another child, but it's because she's trying to understand the expectation. Are you going to hate on her for that? Really? And, you know, I just think you asked me in one of the, I think it was the first podcast we did together. How would you have felt if you were diagnosed earlier or how is misdiagnosis you know, really impacted your life. And I just think if I was diagnosed as a child and had the support that I try to give to my children and I'm definitely not perfect and there is so much I can be doing, there's also a lot that I do do. It would have really made an enormous difference to that level of shame that I carried my entire life. And I was, you know, I was told I was too loud. Oh, just be quiet. Keep your voice down. I didn't even know I was loud. or you just stop talking don't interrupt i'm trying but i actually don't have a strategy tool resource to use and you you learn things and you mask because you pick up things in social situations so if i behave like this if i'm just quiet and i don't say what i need then i'm not a problem so you translate that into adulthood you know friendships or going through school friendships, you give and give and give. And the other thing with ADHD is, is, you know, a lot of them, again, generalisation, but I I think in amongst the circle I have, I, I know it's quite common, is we want to do things really well. So, and if it's something we enjoy, we want to do it. Whether we have the energy to do it or not is irrespective, but we want to do it and we want to do it well, so we're going to. So then we are giving so much of ourselves to people who don't who are not giving it back because we have this unhealthy understanding of what that friendship or relationship looks like and i truly think having a diagnosis when you're young and you know navigating it with your parents or having that understanding or them having that understanding can really help as you move through high school and Instead of isolating yourself, you're like, okay, I understand why this is hard, and being given options from you know, or maybe do this today because you can't see those things. You're so rigid in your thinking. You're so you know process driven or so impulsive. You know, having those discussions can be really beneficial, and I I just never had that, and I don't know. I don't even know if from now until what point it will take to undo all of that. Mm, Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. That's that's a big topic right
0: there. It's interesting. And then I do see a lot online about people saying they don't want to disclose to their child for fear that that – and, I mean, even the school said that to me. They said, oh, um, you know, we feel that your daughter is playing into it or she's getting worse because – she's diagnosed. And I said, well, that's really interesting because I haven't actually disclosed anything to her. So that's not it. Thanks for that. But I hear a lot of people talk about the labeling and that, that's probably a different, a different topic, but I do think I would have preferred to know, I would have preferred to be diagnosed and then be told for sure. And I mean, when that happens is totally up to the parents. And if that happens is up to the parents, but I am planning on disclosing to my kids at some point. But I don't think that time is quite now. I think as as a mother, you get a good gist on when your child is ready and not ready, and I don't think my daughter, who's the oldest, is is ready at the moment. However, I will. I am planning on doing that at some point. But I think we're getting close because she does have insight into friendships and being excluded and being different and wanting to do different things and having different interests and behaving differently and often – inappropriately according to what society would say. However, appropriate for her. And so I think those relationships can be really difficult if you are feeling that you don't fit in from an early age. And we talked about that in our self-hatred episode, didn't we? Where if you feel that you don't fit in, you're not getting it right from the beginning, your self-esteem really plummets. And perhaps self-esteem and relationships are really at play here too, because- you've got self-esteem wound right in there. And then if you don't feel that you are a great friend and a great person, then maybe you don't feel like you can ask for what you need in a relationship because you're just so blessed to be there and have a friend that you don't want to rock the boat. So you end up people pleasing. You know, I remember at school, there was always those girls that would go and put the popular girls' rubbish in the bin for them. And that was their role. They would stand there and wait for the kid to be finished with their chip packet and they'd go and put it in the bin for them. And, you know, I I just think that was such a like, like an almost a job that they would do to fit in. And I think the relationships piece to ADHD is something that I'm nowhere near mastering. I'm I'm not even aware of what I don't know yet. That's how behind I am. Where would you say in your life if you could think of, you know, some examples that it's really impacted, like friendships, romantic,
1: where do you think it has been for you? Yeah, certainly friendships. I mean, navigating a social situation from when I was really little, I remember like grade one, I remember it being just not knowing what to do. I wasn't aware at that point that everyone else knew what to do and I didn't, but that came at about grade 4 or 5 and I had also changed schools so then I was trying to navigate a new school new teachers and new friends which all had different rules to the old school and the old friends and you know that seemed impossible so if you don't know how to navigate a social situation in grade 4 5 and 6 how is high school going to go down for you and the other thing I see with my daughter I saw happening with my daughter and I really recognized in how school went for me was the relationship with the faculty. So I wanted to follow the rules. So I was very compliant. They would teachers would ask me to do something and I would do it. So they would give me more things to do. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't an A student because I could barely concentrate in class because I had no idea what was going on because someone was clicking their pen. There was noise outside. I didn't understand the way the teacher was explaining it. And then I'd get in trouble for talking because I was asking somebody like far out, I don't even know what page we're up to, what is going on? But I talk too much. If she just focused better, you know, she could achieve so much. (laughs) Literally written verbatim on a Very familiar. Very familiar to a lot of us, isn't it? Right. And the compliance, so the level of compliance, equated them giving you more responsibility, but I couldn't cope with that responsibility because it generated so much anxiety. And I saw that happening with my daughter and I really had to go in and, and, you know, advocate for her in enough, enough stuff. She does not need enough, another lunchtime taken up with a different job. And you need to stop putting it in front of her because if you put it in front of her, she wants to do it because she actually doesn't want to let you down and you know, I'm trying to do a lot of work with the kids around, you know, doing things doesn't equate being a better human. You know, if you don't put your hand up for that job, but it's so uncomfortable, it's so uncomfortable for me. It is not a natural response because I going into, you know, my daughter's in high school now and I don't want her to have that belief that, well, if you just do things for people, then they're happy. And that's just what you do. That's your role because, you know, I'd be really curious as what the incidence rates are across, you know, domestic violence and family violence with neurodivergence, because you know, if there's a level of I guess understanding there that this is just what you do, of course you you know, put all of their needs before your own. And then when you don't, then it's a problem. And that is definitely not okay. <laughs> And but I'd be curious to know what those stats look like if they're even out there, because then heading into you know intimate relationships is, is that what translates? And, and in my experience, it it really has been, and the uncomfortability in saying something, maybe how you feel or what you want or what you need, and not being able to maybe follow the in inverted commas a script of social. Acceptance about something, so you just blurt it out, and they're confronted, and then they're cross, and then you're scared, and then you're angry, and then you blow up. Like if that's the process, just because I didn't know how to navigate a social situation when I was five, that's catastrophic for people in work environments, in you know, (laughs) family, in it. It's just you know, professional working environments or. Um, even like with your doctors or, you know, if you can't navigate a process like that without getting so stressed that you might impulsively say, what's the point or whatever, and then they have this perception of you that really isn't you, it's just your reaction to not understanding, that's unfair. People don't get the support they need. Your experience of conflict is
0: then really negative. I, I feel like that with myself I'm very conflict avoidant I'll never start conflict with anybody. I would much prefer to put myself, you know, people please rather, and I'm not talking about strangers, I'm talking about really close people that I love dearly. I'm more than happy to tell a telemarketer to go away and, you know, people that I don't know very well, that that doesn't worry me. I'm more than happy to let the swimming teacher know that, you know, the direct debit double charge me, that doesn't worry me. But when it comes to a significant other that I love deeply, it becomes really difficult because my experience of conflict isn't great. So I think when you have, like what you are mentioning is you have people that aren't emotionally ready or aren't, haven't learned the social rules, don't have an understanding of how ADHD impacts their relationships, right? They And they're 35 at this point, 40. And then they, they've got all this evidence that it's not good to ask for what you want because you end up getting really anxious and it doesn't work anyway. Then you just lay down on the ground and basically people walk all over you. And that's just my opinion in what's happened to me and and some people that I know at times, because you haven't learned the skill. And with skills, I think, you know, if you have a neurotypical person, I would imagine that social situations happen gradually. So you might have a small, small conflict when you're, when you're nine, a bigger one, when you're 12, then you're 16 and it gradually goes up. And the next thing you know, you know, you're navigating a marriage or a child at 25, 30. If you haven't had that experience, you're at high stakes. So suddenly, you might have one baby, a house, a partner, and you're like, "This is the first time you've had to actually navigate a conflict." And I'm speaking from experience that happened to me, and then I actually had no idea how to talk to my husband about what I needed because I'd never really experienced it before. So sorry, sorry to hijack, but I just I, I find it really fascinating because of relationships, a conflict. I I don't understand it
1: yet. Yeah, it's so interesting. And again, you know, I mentioned if you haven't been coached through or supported through navigating a social situation, you know, you then look at emotional regulation. You know, my son, I think it was so beneficial that he was diagnosed really early and he's definitely the most emotionally self-aware human in our household. And that is because he had intervention from when he was five and every week he had a class that talked about recognizing your emotions and what they are and what they feel like and what they look like in him and what they look like in other people and then how to navigate that, how to regulate when you're feeling this and how you might help someone if they're feeling that. And he is, you know, he's 10 but he is so much more emotionally self-aware than I am at, at even 39 and he has no problem in asking For what he needs, the delivery might be tricky because he's ten. But he will ask. He might be crying while he's asking, or he might be nearly crying while he's asking. But he's asking. I I'm learning how to do that at 39, and I have, you know, some real strategies in place before I even get to that point. And as a kid you know, I was just too emotional. Oh yeah, don't worry about her. She's just emotional. That's just who she is. She's too emotional. Or that's unreasonable to be that upset about that. So then I'm learning that I'm I'm just unreasonable and I'm you know, that's I'm because I lack the ability to regulate my emotions and I I didn't know how to do that. That has impacted my professional life. I'm really glad that early on I seemed to develop a strategy that really worked for me and mitigated the risk of any serious damage because I think if I was in a workplace for a significant amount of time, it would have just been a disaster. But I started doing contract work when I was 19. So I would take on a contract for like a week and I would give it, you know, a thousand percent and I'd be so good at it or I would do temp work and they'd call me back and they'd offer me a job. And a couple of times, actually, I did take a job and then I got in there. I was like, this is boring because there's no goal and there's no end date. And the goal is what just sit here forever and do this. No, thank you. But then I would, you know, put in the resignation or you know and so then I was oh well she's unreliable and she's careless and she's I'm not I'm just horrendously bored at the thought of sitting at this desk for any longer than a week so I then would start taking on like three month roles or you know maybe a month They kind of they did they went for you know a couple of days of temp work to then a month and I I just don't know how I wasn't diagnosed. You know, I just love the thrill of a chase and the thrill of not knowing whether I had a contract or not. Like I didn't know that everybody else would almost have 50 fits at the thought of that, but I was like, will I have a contract tomorrow? Where am I working? Which road am I driving on? I have no idea. I so get that because I had like a full
0: psychology degree and I could have just walked into a job and I chose to work in commission-only sales for a while why that makes no sense
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's the challenge like I can do yeah sure I can do that and I can do it well I used to
0: sell a hundred thousand dollar personal development programs on the phone right and I was a psychologist like a graduate like I couldn't I still don't understand what I was doing that makes so much sense do you think though that there's then from what you've just said having three month contract there's a lack of ability to navigate relationships because you don't have anything long term. What you're talking about that. is starting, meeting and then leaving, starting meeting. So in any relationship there's conflict, there's a journey, it has to happen that way. You can't do it otherwise. And it's like but if that's what you were doing through 19 onwards, so where where were you learning these skills? Cuz you haven't really set yourself up to learn.
1: No, I didn't even know I needed to learn them and I, again, this is where ADHD has been so great for me and my life. You know, we really do talk about the toll it takes because that's massive and intense, but there are some benefits. And because I had done all of this contract work and because I would hyper-focus on it, live and breathe it and understand it better than the people that have been working there for 10 years and I was really good at it, I had then developed this broad range of skill set by the time I was 23, which let me walk into, you know, my first job at IBM, my first contract with IBM, which, you know, I was 23. And kudos to my beautiful friend. We have been friends, you know, since I took that job now, my beautiful friend Jules, and she saw my ability and she was not Questioning my age in that at all. She was like, We need you. But in true ADHD style, I was living in Melbourne and I got the call saying, Oh, you know, can you come in to sign the paperwork? I was like, No worries. Where is, what's the address? They gave me the address and I thought, Wow, that's a suburb I've not heard of before. And I've lived in Melbourne my whole life and I've worked around Melbourne my whole life. That's because it was a suburb in the ACT. Good old ACT. That's where the job was. Wow. So, so what did you do? I packed up my life and I moved
0: there. Of course you did. Of course you, because you had to take the contract. And see, that's that impulsivity because I move states every six months throughout my 20s. I actually remember, and this is embarrassing, I remember being in Melbourne, I had an apartment, and I decided I didn't like it anymore, didn't like the job, just decided overnight, don't want to do it. And it sounds crazy, but I actually sublet it with furniture and everything included. For some reason, this woman responded to my like gum tree ad, came in and I thought, oh, she seems good. Didn't think about the like security or anything, right? Just let her in. She paid me some money, I think. And I just left, right? Went to a different state, started a new job, right? And then I didn't actually pack up any of my stuff in Melbourne. Then I moved up to Sydney after that. And then at some point the real estate person said to me, Are you gonna come? Like, are you renewing your lease? I was like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I partied all night in Sydney, right? Your 20s is always a bit rough. I partied all night, caught a flight back from Sydney to Melbourne, walked in, very sick to say the least, walked in, moved out this apartment. I remember the guy in the building was like, Oh, look, he was you have to like book the the lift. You can't just use a lift all day. You have to book the lift. And I came up with some story about why I had to do it because it wouldn't let me use a lift, put it all in storage, right, cleaned it out, got a bond cleaner in, in one day, flew back out to Sydney. I look back at that and think, who the hell was that? And that's not what normal people do. I remember just telling a couple of mates in Sydney, oh, they're like, what have you been up to? I was like, oh, yeah, flew down to Melbourne yesterday, packed up, came back up. They were like, I didn't even know you lived in Melbourne. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, that was, you know, you just, you're flying by the seat of your pants all the time, all the time, and then people that know you, you battle this crazy vibe that you've got because you're like, I'm not crazy. It actually makes complete sense to me and I'm completely capable, but I'd also be living this life where I'd be like, well, what do you mean you're thinking about taking this job? Just do it. Like I don't even know why you're still talking about it a week later. I did find that moving jobs, moving states meant I was completely unable to maintain proper adult relationships, friendships included, because if things got hard, I just left. I was like, well, I'm out of here. This is no longer exciting to me. So then that means that sometimes as women, I think a lot of us has come into our 30s, not actually equipped socially with where we need to be in terms of mum life, you know navigating a relationship, a really important one that's the father or the partner that you have. You've got kids and friends that you desperately need to maintain, right? Because you can't live mum life without friends. You can't. You we're social beings. And plus, I'm sorry to get on a rant. Do you know what else? It was so excruciating to me that I couldn't leave. So when I met my husband and we settled down, and he's a real rock person. He's really stable. He owned a business. He had no capacity to leave or, or change. And I was like, this is getting hard and I wanted to leave the area. But then I was pregnant and I was like, oh, wow, I am forced to actually confront my inner self rather than just leaving and adventuring more. And I think that really hit me hard when I had a baby where I was like, "The all these games that I used to play and The roller coaster and the fun is out the window because I can't do any of those things anymore. And that for me is like I've had a baby and then I've actually had to, I feel like I had a baby when I was about 18 years old mentally because all of that navigating I've had to do with not only one but multiple children.
1: And it makes so much sense when we look at the understanding that we actually operate at about 30% less of our actual age. So at 17, I went to the UK. Like I was like 12 mentally. Like no wonder I had not thought out like how am I going to contact my friends when I'm in the – I had no idea. I was just like rock up and figure it out. (laughs) But sure, yeah, why not? And I
0: feel like (laughs) you and I have lived such similar lives. Like I remember flying to Bali, right, and I had $100. I spent all my money on the ticket. And when I got there, I thought I should really make some sales here. I hope my internet works for Skype because I had to work in Penang or something, and I didn't have any money to get there. And I hadn't thought that through. Who lives like that? Like I just—that was my daughter. I'd be like, "What are you thinking?" Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but when you said you were to the UK with no money, I'm like, "Is that what we all do?"
1: We <laughs> just figure it out, and then you know, I think something that is wonderful and it, it keeps coming up the more conversations I have. I'm like ADHD moms particularly we are brave humans and we get shit done. ADHD Absolutely. is in general if it we, we, if we have motherfuckers we are uh, correct. Yeah. So resilient and so brave like but without knowing we're brave. We don't you know we don't think we're brave and then do the things. We do the things and then other people are like Nobody else is doing that, like, good on you. Yeah, but then is that just because
0: we don't think of the consequences? Is that brave or is that stupid? Because I don't know, I think I'm on the edge of stupid most of the time.
1: I would really like to say brave because people aren't interested in entertaining the idea because it's too scary, whereas we will 100% entertain it and probably do it. We'll learn from it maybe and then change it the next time if we've got the right tools and support and help. And this is the difference of getting a diagnosis when you're young. So, yeah, sure, be exciting, have those things, have you followed the process that we developed to support you the best that you can in life, you know. And, and that's the value when I feel a diagnosis. And I'm wondering if that is also why the burnout rate is so high come you know you're 35 plus women and that is why they are only diagnosed at the point of crisis because they have flown by the seat of their pants relentlessly they have moved they have upended themselves they have changed everything constantly they haven't had a solid foundation of community and it's a saying that's been around forever it takes a village to raise children. And if you don't have a village, you've got no connection and you are on your own. And if you've moved, however many times throughout that, if you've even moved, my children were young when I moved, my daughter was three, my son was one when we moved from Melbourne to the Gold Coast. I didn't know anybody and that was hard, but I didn't realize how hard it was. And you're constantly reinventing yourself and using all your energy, and it's sensory overload because there's new smells, new sounds, new house, new this and that. And then you get to a point where you just legitimately can't do it anymore, and it's all compounding. And then you'll find yourself, you know, in this crisis point of being diagnosed. Whereas, you know, such a great example is my daughter is so entrepreneurial and she loves the idea of. You know, having a business and making things. And she has started a business and it's been really great. She makes candles and sells them. When we were creating her business name, I said to her, have a think about this really carefully because if you make it broad enough, it can actually be really adaptable to anything that you like. And she didn't really take a lot of note of that. And so we have, you know, she's been doing her candles for a couple of months now and then yesterday she realized that she likes candles and they make her smile and she can do it she's very capable but they don't bring her joy she's successful at it she's good at it and she's capable of doing it but it doesn't bring her joy she is a huge animal lover our dog Frankie is her just Rock for her. And I said to her, Why why don't you think about something to do with pets or Frankie? And the sun just beamed out of her face. And I said, You know, the good thing is, she goes, What about the candles? And what about? And I said, Well, you can finish the candles. You don't have to stop doing candles right this second and start doing something else. They can actually be a process of transition. And your business name can actually sell whatever. And that was a conscious decision and adjustment that I made when she was doing that to help her be able to navigate that change and not feel like she'd let people down because she's not doing candles anymore or that she just changes her mind all the time or that, you know, there's actually options. And I just wonder if I had had that level of understanding, and we spoke really openly about that. You know, I, I said to her, That was why I'd encouraged that. So, you have that level of flexibility. We need this for our brains because we naturally want to chase the change. Let's do it and let's do it in a safe way. And I just wonder how many times I wouldn't have moved <laughs> if I understood that. And I, I do. I think, you know, I don't, I only, mean, my GP I've had now. For six years he's my longest serving GP I've had in my whole life yeah that's so interesting because you want her to have
0: flexibility so then it's like I suppose with relationships as well you're having that awareness so you are going to need a lot of different types of friendships are going to keep you engaged and different types of careers are going to keep you engaged and because we need something changing and moving to keep us excited But we also need to create state stability. And then how do those two meet together? Because sometimes with ADHD, you might not have the best role model either. So you might not have necessarily seen that in your parents. So then how do you then create that in yourself? And you know, I I am still mastering that. So it'll be really interesting for me when I'm coming up against that. How do you go with like managing conflict in ADHD? How do you think that that works? When I
1: was Younger, probably up until about 10 years ago, I would just shut down and start crying, which was really useless because I had all of these things that I wanted to say, but I was so overwhelmed, I would just cry. And I remember my dad saying to me when I was younger, You just stop crying and talk to me. And I was like, I would just keep crying, and I never understood it. Now I understand it, you know, I couldn't stop that overwhelming emotion that was happening of crying I couldn't stop it that was out of my control to then be able to verbalize what was going on and I always thought my poor dad I always thought he just hates it when people cry no he didn't he was trying to help me he can't help me if I'm crying and so I was late to nursing and I am at uni doing my RNs now And I said to my friend, you know, last week, I just feel like I wish I did my RNs when I was younger. I just wish I had gone to uni and just done it because I want to have that hospital experience, that emergency work, the ward work. I want to have that experience and I just don't have it. And that night I was thinking about the conversation we had and I thought, you know what, I don't think I could have hacked it in my 20s because a charge nurse would have said something to me and I would have just cried. I would have been useless. I would have been great under pressure, but I couldn't have received critical, sorry, constructive criticism the way I do now. And understanding people or the behavior of people has really helped me understand conflict and be able to navigate it. So If someone's really angry and cross about something, I will just validate how they're feeling. Like, yeah, I can really understand that that has annoyed you or that that's inconvenient or that that makes you feel like that. I can understand how that happens. I don't actually need to give my response or my side of that in that moment. And sometimes I'm really good at practicing that and sometimes I'm not. (laughs) So I'm still on that journey, but not everybody deserves a response straight away and it's not unreasonable to ask for time to respond so if you you know get an email saying this has happened you might your initial thought might be oh i need to reply to this right now why so following that that the literal process that i have it it does not come naturally i have to it's a skill you know is this time critical What will happen if I don't reply within the next hour, two hours today, this week? Can I give them some information, you know, thanks for letting me know, let me spend some time on this and I'll get back to you, full stop. And again, not putting that pressure of when I'm going to get back to them because it might not give me the answer. In a face-to-face situation in terms of conflict now, I have a very high sense of justice. As a lot of ADHDers do, and I find it really difficult if I feel like there there is a you know a gross sense of injustice going on, and I will highlight that. And if it's something I'm really passionate about, like the children, or something that's important to me, I am not giving up or letting go easy. And what I'm trying to work on in those moments is. Just because I stop talking or I don't give a reaction or I don't say what I'm thinking, that doesn't mean I've lost or it doesn't mean that I'm okay with what that person's saying. It just means I'm navigating this tricky element of conflict better than what I previously have. What do you think, like
0: personally, you found because you were diagnosed so late? Do you think you've lost out socially with like friends that you could have possibly? saved it with conflict? Like if you had a, had better conflict resolution, do you think you could save things? Like, you know, there'd have to be stuff that you've lost along the way there.
1: Definitely. There definitely has been. And I, I did, I, I lost a lot of friendship because a couple of reasons. So if they did something I, I didn't like, I couldn't tell them. So I would just cut it off. <laughs> I just ghost them. I was ghosting before I even knew it was a thing because I didn't know what to do. And then there were, you know, if a conflict did arise, I would just back away because I was scared. I didn't feel like I had, I was allowed to have an opinion or I was just wrong. So I'm not, I don't want to be a part of that. And then there was the, you know, you just blow up and you've made a mistake. And then it's reasonable that people don't want to ever speak to you again. So it was actually your fault, even if what they had done was unreasonable, or even if I had genuinely, you know, it was a mistake. It was an error in judgment. It wasn't reasonable, whatever. I've done the wrong thing and I blew up about it and that wasn't right. But that doesn't mean I can't use some conflict resolution strategies to try and resolve that if I really liked That person or that friendship, I just thought it was completely reasonable that they'd never want to speak to me again, and wouldn't initiate contact or couldn't. See
0: that, and that's where the gradual learning is supposed to come into play, especially with the with the growing up as well. Like for example, you know, you you might start off giving your child ten dollars and getting them to walk to the shop, and they buy one thing. You don't, you know, put them on the bus to Coles for a weekly shop. You know, first up, right? So you're supposed to have a gradual skill. So. You have, you know, little tiny conflicts and then you're supposed to build and build and learn and get some positive resolutions. I was listening to a podcast the other day around conflict and it was actually practicing. It was really interesting. I can't remember what it was called. I wish I did. But it was actually practicing using the words. So it was like, I'm sorry, but I am unable, unable to do that because and then like you plug it in, you actually practice saying the words. For me, that was so foreign. Like I couldn't even couldn't even still really figure out how to do that. And I noticed in my daughter, there's a little girl on the street that she really likes hanging out with that she considers a friend, but the girl keeps doing this weird thing. I don't understand it where she taps her on the head. I don't actually understand it. And my daughter hates it, but she would just prefer to put up with it than say anything. And she's told me that, you know, I absolutely cannot say anything. And I'm like, well, maybe you could do this. Maybe you could, like, what could you do? We try to problem solve it. And basically she's not prepared to do anything because she's just going to let, let this happen. And I'm like thinking, I would love to mentor
1: you more deeply.
0: I don't know. And I realized some of those real social deficits
1: are still there. And that's why I really do think it's so important that I teach my children the things that they value in a good human. What are they? What are those values? What does a good human in your eyes and good human, in inverted commas, what does that look like? You know, are they hitting you on the head? No. Well, are we friends with people who don't have the same values as us? No, and that's okay. And it's it's also about normalizing that what they're asking for is not unreasonable. So if someone has asked me to do something and I think, you know, if I've had the time, the energy, <laughs> and the moons have all aligned to a point where I can utilize a skill and I can think that's actually really unreasonable and if I asked them that what would they say and I have done this a few times over the last month where I then no like flat out no and I've tormented myself in that moment of oh my gosh I need to use a strategy I think this is unreasonable these are the reasons why I think this is unreasonable and I have to do this that and the other and and I then asked you know so if this was the situation or could you do this or, and ask it in a similar way, but with a different set of circumstances. So they're not recognizing that it's a direct correlation. And they just so nonchalantly go, oh no, I can't do that. I'm like, do you, do you want to think about that for a second? Like just half a second, give it half a second. And it just surprises me. So I, I'm trying to really teach the children as well that You know, sometimes people will ask them unreasonable things, and it's okay for you to identify them as unreasonable. And if you can do it, but you require some support in doing that, that is also not unreasonable. So, yeah, sure, I can do that thing, but by five days later than what you've asked, not today. Or, I need, yeah, sure, I can do that thing, but I need this and this and this from you so that I can give you the best. Of whatever. And I'm really trying to teach them that because it's so hard. Lifing is so hard when you don't. And then you add in if you've got a sensory profile. So you're in this situation that you're already uncomfortable, you're anxious, you know, you've got physical symptoms of anxiety, your chest is tight, you're breathing fast, your face is hot, you're starting to tear up, and someone's going, Come on, well, can't you just give me an answer now? Like, oh, I just need you to do that. And you know, recognizing those signs and then thinking, you know, I can't give you that answer now, but I can give it to you tomorrow. When you're, you know, you're, you're breathing fast, you're, you're feeling stressed, right?
0: At that moment, I would be thinking to myself, I will just do what they want because I have to get out of this anxiety feeling, you know, like where you're just like, I would just prefer to do anything else, but have to go through this weird conflict where I don't understand what's happening. I'm pretty sure I've offended somebody. And now it's not worth it. That that like, that like for me just goes through my mind. I'm like, I actually would do anything. Like, you know, when you send a message and you go, oh, look, can't do that because, and you're just like anxiously there and you're trying to figure out, okay, they wrote back, but it was a thumbs up. Was that a thumbs up because they're busy? Was that a thumbs up because they're angry? And then you're like, I don't know. And you just have no idea of what you're doing. So it's just an area of real concern for me, to be honest.
1: Absolutely. But and I am exactly the same as you, you know, there's so many times in my life where I had just twice that I can really recount off the top of my head, but I'm sure there was more where I've just up and left a job. I'm like, I'm not doing this. And I've walked out. I could almost guarantee in that those situations There was some kind of sensory overload. There was an unreasonable expectation of me there. I was not supported in the instructions. So I didn't know what I was meant to be doing. And then I did it wrong, but I didn't even know how I did it was wrong. And no one took the time to explain it. Maybe they did, but I didn't know that I didn't understand it. And I couldn't regulate my emotions. So I just failed. Henry can recognize his emotions and he I encourage them both and me now to be aware of what those are so is this an anxiety driven response so this is what I want to do I want to leave I want to say yes that's what I want to do because it's driven by anxiety but is it actually what I want and at the moment we're navigating in our house you know recognizing that emotion and then naming it and then am I responding like this? We call it Miggy in our house. So (laughs) Miggy is anxiety. So is Miggy in the driving seat or are you in the driving seat? And if Miggy's in the driving seat, you need a, yeah, you need a strategy to get Miggy out of the driving seat and you get back in there. And that, that's, that's the talk that we have in our house. So I understand that you feel like that, you know, if the kids are crying, I validate that. I know you're upset. I can see you're frustrated. And then we say, you know, then we use, hey, do you think Miggy's in the driving seat? Because I want them to recognize, is Miggy in the driving seat? Yeah, okay. So what are we going to do? You need a big mum hug. We're going to go and sit in a quiet space of the house. We are going to wash our face. We are going to those simple, quick things. Let's get Miggy out of there. And then we can again work on, okay, what is the situation? Why do we think this? we actually this is the outcome that we want so let's do this and let's navigate it together and do not get me wrong that is exhausting as an adhd mum, i'm doing it all day i'm doing it with two different kids who have miggy in the driving seat for very different reasons it's never consistent and it's hard and it's exhausting and i'm not great at it but i'm doing it because it's helping
0: Yeah, and I think it's about getting those positive experiences with anxiety too, which I don't think I've experienced yet. But I imagine if, you know, kids that are doing early intervention, I imagine that's what they're doing. So, you know, having the anxiety, moving through it, continuing to ask what you need and then getting a positive response. I think if you have that situation that you can experience, you could actually start to, you know, grow in the habit, grow in the skill and learn to feel the feelings and move through it. But as ADHD mums, a lot of us have not mastered emotional regulation ourselves. And one thing that I noticed that you said earlier, which really highlighted to me again, why this podcast exists is that, you know, your sons had early intervention right from a young age, as have mine. However, I was actually taking my daughter to the GP much earlier. Yet she missed out on early intervention because I was told that she was fine. So now I have, you know, my 7-year-old daughter who you just got to look at her the wrong way, she's on the ground crying because she just can't handle any disapproval or even a slightly raised voice, even if I look at her that I'm I'm disappointed in a face. She's highly upset easily and I know that my boys won't have that experience necessarily as severe because they've they've had a lot of that early intervention and that's great for them and of course you want that for them. But I'm like Come on guys, we've got to get these these girls in here earlier because they need the same opportunities. I mean it's just unfair.
1: I completely agree. My my daughter was the same and she was diagnosed later than my son and she didn't have that early intervention, nor did she have that exposure to understanding emotional regulation despite having a diagnosis because she was compliant at school and deemed, you know, and very capable. So And they weren't seeing those behaviours. I was seeing them at home. So it's been really hard for her because she's so sensitive to those things, you know, a raised voice, an opinion, a negative connotation to a comment or a discussion. She's really sensitive to those things. And what I have found really helpful with her is actually working through understanding what those, you know, and naming your emotions and, you know, putting together it's okay to be nervous when you're going, it's expected that you'll be nervous when you do something new and that doing something new like this is going to be hard doing something new, like going to a different cinema. Sure. It might be, you know, a different location and it won't, but it's not hard, but you know, doing a new subject at school, that's hard and it's okay to feel nervous and to feel like it's hard. That's, that's a reasonable feeling. And then what do we do to help those feelings? And I've been working with her on that and, you know, and my son too as he gets older because he no longer has access to that weekly. So we do it at home. But it's been really helpful for me in recognising, you know, situations where conflict might arise and I feel this gross sense of injustice and I'm like, okay, well, I feel like this, you know, that's how I might feel angry that the world does this, but right now it's unreasonable for me to be angry at that person. So I can be a bit upset or I can be, that's not unreasonable. And I might tell that person, you know, oh, that really upsets me. I might name that and that can help me navigate that. But far out, it's so hard as a 39-year-old woman because, the world and society have expectations of how you behave or how you can behave or what you should know. They don't know I went through my whole life not learning this stuff.
0: Yeah, and then you're kind of like coaching your children and learning at the same time, which isn't that terrifying? It's like blind leading the blind ultimately. That's how I feel because like my daughter will say to me, but if I don't let this girl pat me on the head when she wants to, she probably won't be my friend. And I was like, you know, she might not be the right friend for you, right? Okay, we have that conversation. You know what she says to me? Well, I don't have any others. So basically, it's her or no one. And then I'm thinking, well, I don't know what to say because that's a shit choice. It's her or no one. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Um,
1: how do I parent this? Yeah.
0: It's also a lack of options when you have ADHD and she's a little out there. As I said, she's musical theatre, she does her performances all over the place. You know, everywhere is a, a stage for my daughter. She's hilarious. She runs around in whatever outfits that don't make sense, and high heels and does performances. And so she has, she feels that she has a lack of options. I feel she hasn't met the right group of people yet. This is what I think, and I'm hoping that there's a, you know, musical theatre crew that maybe she can get in with that maybe are a bit more her style. But, yeah, I think when you're battling low self-esteem, you don't have many friends, then you hit conflict. I can totally understand why you were people, please, at that point to maintain your one friend or your two friends. I don't even think I would have the skills to even know what to what to suggest at that point because it's that person or nobody, you know, and that's a hard choice for a little girl
1: i feel I really feel you on that. it is such a harsh reality as a parent when you're faced with this stuff because you know you just see her beauty and her kindness and her fun and when other people are seeing that as not a positive thing it's really confronting and then you're the most adult in the room to help most adult adult to help with that and you don't know how to navigate it and you know you mentioned like finding their tribe so I feel with both my kids we moved to a new area and new schools this year and a new house and I underestimated even though the the tribe that we had might not have been ideal having no tribe or having no tribe is way worse and I underestimated that but also I've gone through all of those changes as well. And then I'm having to reach out to new groups to try and put my kids in those situations and coach them through that because they don't want to, they don't have the energy. I don't have the energy, but how else do you find your tribe if you're not showing up? And so then what's the adjustments that I need to make around that as mum? You know, I make sure that, They've got their safe foods or I make sure that they've got nothing else organized around that or I've got so my workload increases tenfold. I mean, I could ignore it, but I know what life looks like if you don't. And I don't want that for them because I lived that. So, you know, I do push myself to do these things and I'm scared that they won't find that. I have that, but my tribe is dotted all around Australia because your girl moved 20 times.
0: Yeah, I hear you, I hear you.
1: So it's, it's different, it's a different village. Yeah, it's just,
0: I don't know, I think it's so heartbreaking when you have been through that yourself, felt that you don't fit, had your own social challenges and then you see your kids come through, went to pick up my daughter from this equine farm the other day for like a vacation care thing and she had a couple of friends there or i mean one friend and then the other one was a friend of that friend but anyway she felt that she had a friend she didn't really but anyway and i noticed that the a couple of them were like carpooling and i was just really aware that we were not included and i am also not an idiot And I'm aware that my daughter is quite loud and she can be over the top. And of course, she's like straight up wants to go with them. And they're really nice people, but they had sincerely declined very nicely. And that's lovely. But I actually could really pick up what was happening there. And I thought this is a reflection of like them being tired as parents. I understand that. And then having to take a child that's quite intense. And they've just picked the kids that are a bit quieter and a bit less maintenance. And I totally understand why, but I, I had a conversation with her about appropriateness on, you know, being loud and when to be quiet and if you're in someone's car. and But then on the other side of that, it's like, but I'm squashing who she is because that's who she is. So then you're just like stuck. You're like, I want you to be accepted. But she's looking at me going, why? I like to sing in the car. Why? I You know, and she doesn't get it. And I just think, well, maybe I should just let her go.
1: It's just it does my head in. I don't want her to become a teenager. I don't know what I'll do. Right, and it's you know, I guess in that instinct instance, my first instinct is to put her in your car and turn the music up and have the best time because you're being loud. You know, show them that that is not something. You know, look how much fun you're having. They're not having that much fun in the car you know the kids are talking about whatever in the back seat and the mum you know is maybe listening to the radio whatever but they are not having as much fun as you're having and you're only having that much fun because she is who she is and you're embracing that i do try that and i'm super lucky that i do have a beautiful beautiful soul who i'm blessed to call you know one of my best friends who who gets it so she's not you know, she's putting the kids in the car and my daughter, she does talk a lot. She's curious. She wants to share a lot. And so they, you know, she adopted a strategy to embrace that, but also make it manageable. So if she takes her somewhere, you know, she's like, okay, Mills, you've got, you know, 15 minutes, hit me with everything. And then we're turning the music on and you can sing your heart out because she doesn't want to change who she is either. She can see it's valuable, but she needs to, she's trying to help her understand as well that there's boundaries. And she obviously knows that I'm okay with that. And, you know, we've had numerous discussions about this and that's why I'm so blessed that she is my, my friend, because, you know, we, we nurture that together and the kids have that support and they're not being squashed. But I really find so many times, you know, during our days that, you know, I'm squashing the kids because it's social normal or, you know, I've got a time pressure or whatever, or, you know, society is squashing them because it's not acceptable for whatever. And I'm really trying to open the conversation with them of, oh, do we think that's really unreasonable or why, why, what might people be feeling when we're doing that or whatever and open that conversation so that they're more aware of navigating a social situation so that their relationships you know, when they're older are a lot, you know, are a lot more mutually beneficial. But I think there needs to be a lot of education out there for neurotypicals of what this looks like because we're we're telling these kids they need all this understanding of emotional regulation and we need to help them navigate social situations and we need to help them, you know, conflict resolution and all of that. And we're teaching neurotypicals that as well, But are we teaching neurotypicals the things that might come up for a neurodivergent? Like, hey, if you're trying to talk to them about something important and the music's on, that's probably not going to go well. So turn the music off and maybe sit down and have that conversation. You know, are we doing that as a society? I don't see it enough.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And the other way to look at it, I mean, obviously kids and and people, I'm, tend to be friends with people that are a little bit more neurodivergent, whether they know it or not. Some people do, some people don't. But I find as well that people that have got, people in their family with special needs are often a lot more understanding. So for example, one of my daughter's friends is neurotypical, I think, I don't know, but her brother has some significant issues and she comes from a family who are very understanding, very open-minded and I think they're quite embracing of people that are a little bit different. That's obviously the message that they are sending at home. And she is really tolerant and they get on quite well. And I think I was thinking about that the other day and I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could educate kids and ourselves to be more inclusive, properly inclusive, not just saying that we are actually doing it because then we would create a generation of people that are a bit more understanding. Because I think that's what's missing there is a lack of, you know, educational knowledge and it's, you know, that they're just a bit like, oh, I don't know what to do here and I'm feeling uncomfortable so I'm going to choose not to take that child in my car. And I I totally understand why. If I wasn't in the situation I was in, I would probably feel the same. But I do think, yeah, instead of making the ADHD people, the neurodivergence, the, you know, the round peg, and then keeping the world as the square hole, how about we just change you know the pegs around make the holes a bit bigger that would also help but you know we're not there yet
1: we're not and it's it's scary when you can see that we're not there but that's what our kids need that i find that really confronting as a parent because again you have the solution but you can't parent that because they're not ready the world's not ready for that so what do you do you watch them suffer pretty much and the things that we can do to be effectively inclusive you know, and sustainable options, they impact everyone positively. You know, if we have kids come over to the house, neurotypical or neurodivergent, I say to them, hey, fidget box, is it's right at the front door because nobody knows how anyone's going to walk in in a day. I'm like, hey, just so you know, there's this box that in here. If you see anything cool in there, feel free to take it out while you're here. Like, that's fine. Just pop it back in when you leave. They all love it. It gives them something to focus on when they're maybe in a new environment or just helping with the transition. Everyone's benefiting from that, and I hate that it's not the norm and that it's seen as different or weird. Or you know, I I really hate that, and i I don't I don't know how to parent that other than just to make the noise on podcasts like this and say, you know, hey, we're here. This is how we're feeling. If anyone else is feeling like that too, you are not on your own.
0: Yeah. And like, I would love to be able to voice that to other neurotypical mums. you know, like it's great to have these podcasts and have neurodivergent women listen. And I I get messages all the time about relatability and I love that, but I would also love to have some conversations with some of these parents that I know who are neurotypical, who aren't particularly open-minded, let's say, but you know, it's that lack of social skills possibly and tact because I can know I can be quite blunt. I also am not very good at small talk, so like I'm not very good at softening it right up before I just go in. So I'm actually quite aware of what I don't do well, but I think I'm lacking the skills on what to do better, or maybe I lack the patience to do it in the situation. I could probably educationally tell you, but at the time I'd get impatient and nervous, and then I just want to rip the band-aid off and just like run it out there, and then I would be disappointed with the result. So. It's really difficult because when we're talking about spreading the message, we need to do it in this like right way for society so it's acceptable and in the right tone, in the right way, which is really difficult because, as we've said, often our social skills are a little lacking. So how do we get this message out? You know, that's, that's a question I don't know the
1: answer to. I think the power is in the people. You know, you have some amazing people that have come on to the podcast and, you know, will continue to. And they're all sharing it. And there will be people in their circles that are neurodivergent. There'll be people in their circles that are neurotypical. But we know, you know, one person shares it to their 500 people in their circle and then they share it. And neurotypical people might see a line about this podcast and go, oh, that's really interesting. And they might listen to it and think, wow, I had no idea that was even their experience. And it might just change something in the way they. Operate or their level of understanding, or and that's all we can do. But if there's no safe space for people to do that, us ADHD mums to do that, it's not even out there in the world. So I think you've done an amazing job of doing that. And it is really hard to navigate socially. And I think it's so funny that my best, my closest friends and my best friends, I communicate in dot points with over text because. They're okay. They know me. They are okay with that. They know if I don't do it, like, like I don't have the energy for all the fluff. I don't want to do that. I'm just going to tell you all the things that I either want to talk about when I see you next, or the things that I need to tell you. But anybody else gets like this paragraph of an introduction and then a lovely summary with all the fluff and then the concluding. And then I'm so hoping that maybe they just write back one word, like that sounds great or, you know, a short sentence so that I don't have to go through that again. And I think, you know, that lack of social interaction is highlighted in that experience.
0: Oh, totally. And I saw a meme the other day and actually been telling my friends this and they so identify with it, with my communication. They're like, they either get 25 messages from me at once or they don't hear from me for three weeks. It's one or the other. I don't just write one message that makes sense. I write changes of mind. They go through the journey of my brain via text message and then they scroll up and often they'll reply, and this is really good friends that I know really well. They'll put, wow, that was a lot, you know. And you know, and, and, and I'm like, yeah, that's that, that's who I am. So it's a different way of communicating. One thing I was going to just mention before we, we, we get off, you know, when we're talking about spreading the message, I've actually got someone coming on the podcast from Confetti Rebels. Oh, I love her. Yeah, I've got her coming on. I can't remember when because, you know, it's me, but I just wanted to read out a couple of the T-shirts. It says here, I love this one. If I'm too much, go find less. I bought that t-shirt. Find your people, love them hard. Hold on, I've got to overthink it. Like there's lots of really cool ones. This one here I didn't buy, but I do love this one. It says, I'm a fucking delight. There's a couple of really good ones, but I suppose maybe spreading the message via sticker and t-shirt is a way to do it in a way that isn't doesn't rely on communication and conflict. And but we're also building that awareness. I'm not sure if I'm – I think I'm going to be brave and wear some of these T-shirts. I think her wording is really cool because I probably wouldn't wear a T-shirt that said ADHD is cool or anything like that. I probably wouldn't wear that to pick up. But I think some of the wording is building awareness without being too much or maybe, I mean, look, we're all too much. I don't know.
1: But I I do think the T-shirts have a place. Absolutely. And I'm a huge Confetti Rebels fan. I have been for about four years. I proudly wear my Mince Pies Before Guys T-shirt in, from all through December and I actually have the I'm a fucking delight t-shirt and I both of these I bought before I had a diagnosis which is that's funny. That's so funny you are wearing an ADHD t-shirt before you had a diagnosis oh, that is so ADHD. Right. And I, you know I do really support those businesses, and I'm always so conscious of you know, is there someone I know in the neurodivergent world that does this thing that I need or that I'm after because they're the people I want to support? If I have a choice and it's what I need, you know, it's tough being neurodivergent, it is tough. And if you're brave enough, which sometimes we are, to put your stuff out there. You've got my support every time if it, you know, aligns with my values and, and I just really I think it's just such a good idea. And I, I I've got my badges. I'm looking around on my desk because I know they're close by because I, I love them from her and I love the energy and I love the realness of it. But that, that is the reality for us and you know, in running a business and I know she shares a lot about that and I, I follow her and I'm inspired by her and motivated by her on days when I can't find the motivation myself, so I, I do think you know spreading that message through through those platforms and people that are out there and neurodivergents that are out there and doing it and feeling like it's hard, you know I appreciate them and and lots of other people do too. Yeah, there was someone on our podcast
0: recently, and they said to me they asked me to edit it out because they didn't want it on, but I'll say it that they have a belief that experts. Are saying this behind the scenes, but no one's coming out yet. The research is not out there yet, but this is where we're going that neurodivergence will make up 50% of the population and there will be no neurodivergence anymore. And they weren't willing to say it as as them on the podcast, and that's fine. But it's really stuck with me because I thought, well, isn't this what raising awareness is? Because then we get in a position that there's so many of us that the world has to change because the ADHD tax that we all pay becomes, you know, like I talked the other day, I put a post up about how I booked a specialist appointment. It had the most complex directions ever. I confused the time. I don't know if you saw that, got there just in time to be charged the cancellation. Yep. Yeah. And then I went back the other day, which is even more embarrassing. I went back, I was again, actually, I was better. I was, they called me five minutes after the time. So I thought the appointment was 11.30. It was actually 11.15. So I'd gone there thinking it was early, but they rang me at 11.20 to see where I was. And I was like, oh, it's, I don't know why you're ringing me. And they're like, it's 11.20. I was like, I know. And we went around in this roundabout and they said, no, you were supposed to be here five minutes ago. And then, of course, the pressure, I then got lost and they let me in this time. But their demeanor was really mean, if I'm honest. And I was actually so nervous walking in because I was like quite rude about it. And I fully understand that from their point of view, their receptionist, I absolutely understand why. But when I was driving around the car park, sweating, trying to find a park, I just felt like these people are going to look at me like I'm an idiot when I get up there. I'm so embarrassed and they're going to be so mean to me, which they were. And then after the appointment, I had to go back again, right? So they've rebooked me and then they're like, told me explicitly what the time was, really treated me like an idiot. But then I also think, well, I've presented like an idiot, so they're treating me like that, you know, like you. But I was like, look, anyway, I ended up saying, look, I have ADHD. They just didn't care. You know, they're kind of like older ladies. I don't think they knew what it was. And, uh, yeah, I really got whatever the saying is wrapped over the knuckles or whatever it is when I was there. And, And then it really put me off going back because I keep making this mistake, but I also know it's my fault and I'm aware it puts people out. But again, if there is 50-50 of the world neurodivergent, I don't know what the answer is there, but a little bit of kindness would go a long way. But then I, I'm also like, I stuffed it up a second time. So I
1: kind of deserve what I get. I don't know. And this is where I think the relief in a diagnosis is so impactful because it relieves you of that you know, inherent belief that you're just terrible at life, full stop, that is how you're feeling. And then, you know, all those other thoughts that come with that. However, it also comes with this unrelenting realization of the need for adjustments in order to survive, not to excel, not to do great things, but just to survive. So you, I'm, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing you didn't need a specialist appointment because you wanted to. You needed this health specialist. You need this professional. So you weren't late on, you know, not understanding directions on purpose. You need to see this person in order to survive. Correct. Correct. Yeah, if I didn't physically need and to be yeah. there, I wouldn't have gone back the second time. You know, that's not a choice, you know, in order to maintain a level of health or whatever, you know, you need to do that. And then you need adjustments and scaffolding and strategies and tools to get you to that point. And people have no idea of what happens. And outwardly we may appear that we can control what's going on, but in reality we have this spiraling motion you know, of thoughts and feelings that we have to strategize and manage. And so by the time we get to the appointment, we've forgotten why we're even there or what we want to Mm. talk about.
0: i had nothing else supposed to take with me (laughs) either. They got there and they're like, oh, so have you got, didn't have any of it. And then that comes back to the self-hatred and the self-esteem because all I felt like when I sat down, I was like, I am an idiot. I am stupid. This always happens to me. And, you know, you just go the negative self-talk why didn't I learn this is the second time? I deserve this. I'm so embarrassed. And then, you know, you leave and they re-explain to you how important it is to be on time. And you're like thinking, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next week. I have to go back and I'll only put more alarms on my phone that I'll probably input at the wrong time. See how we go.
1: When's your appointment? I'll come with you. I'll just rock up to your house and take you there. I just
0: need someone to text me and say, leave home. It's now. And look, Yes. I've, got to get, I've got to get better scaffolding. I'm, I'm clearly still struggling. Have you heard of the strategy of a soft stop and a hard stop? I have online when I work. A lot of people say, do you have a hard finish or a soft finish? Is that what you're referring to?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So I was really good at doing this in my work life. Absolutely terrible in my personal life, especially if I was doing something that I was interested in or excited about. Surprise, surprise. So if I know I have to be leave for an appointment at 1.30, say, and I know I'm doing something, I'll give myself a soft stop of like an hour and a half to, to two hours before. And then I give myself a hard stop of like 45 minutes to half an hour before I have to leave. It can't be a long enough amount of time that I can start doing another task, but it has to be a sufficient amount of time for me to get my shit together. So I need to take a drink. I need to find my keys. Where's my handbag? Have I got my sunglasses? Do I have the things I need to take? That, that takes me <laughs> the best part of half an hour and 45 minutes. And some mornings I need to sneak a shower in there as well but realising that I need that space. So I need 45 minutes before I have to leave to have hard stopped anything I was doing, anything. And it was really uncomfortable for a long time and sometimes I still stuff it up. But it, it has helped with getting places on time. Unless you're a really good friend, that I'm always late because I know you don't hate me because I'm late. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I anticipate those people. I'm like, Oh, they're going to be 30 minutes late. You know, I know how those roles, but yeah, I, I I appreciate that. You know, we're all still learning. And I think, I feel like I'm growing up as I've had my children. I'm like, I really needed to do some of these skills earlier because I'm feeling a bit of a fraud It is blind leading the blind at times, which is terrible.
1: We didn't know it earlier and now we know it. We, We do. So Chantelle, we really
0: should finish up here. It has been an absolute ride, as always. I just feel like maybe it's our ADHD represents, or the symptoms are similar, because when you talk about how it shows up for you, just really shows up similar for me. So I really appreciate having you on this podcast. It's like talking to somebody that just totally gets where I am, and I always learn a lot. Especially because your kids are older, I think you've progressed further
1: on the journey than I have. So really, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Jane. It's it's such a great thing to be a part of, so thanks for putting it out to the people.